This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Wasuka. Coming up, a powerful earthquake rocks Solomon Islands. My car was swaying from side to side and I was trying to get into the car. It was just the moment I was opening the door and then it came. What's the price for pointing out a spelling mistake? Well, for one Fijian lawyer, it could mean jail time. The absurdity of this case is that it is over a spelling mistake. And we'll find out what an Australian broccoli farm and a Vanuatu beach volleyball player have in common. The whole crew are out there you know, on Sundays playing beach volleyball. They're out there after work. Um, It just creates such a positive vibe. We'll have more on those stories coming up. But first, nurses in Pacific countries are leaving their work in droves to take up jobs in Australia as the government expands its labour mobility scheme. As Dubravka Volader reports, it's a situation that's leading to critical gaps in hospital services because there are simply not enough staff available to fill vacant posts. Busy hospital wards and clinics in Fiji recently lost some of their most valued and experienced staff, nurses. Ephraim understands that many of our nurses who have uh, resigned joining that uh, scheme in Australia to work as uh, caregivers. Dr. Alisi Muniniambola is the president of Fiji's Nursing Association. These are very experienced and uh, well-qualified uh, nurses in Fiji. It's a big loss. She estimates half of their nurses have gone overseas to work in Australia, New Zealand, the Middle East and the US over the past six months. She says the health system is struggling and the government isn't releasing data about the exodus of nurses. They're just keeping all the information to themselves. They're not saying the numbers that are leaving. But we know that nurses are leaving almost every day. It's a similar situation in Solomon Islands. Some of the, some of the nurses that have left Australia are very senior nurses uh, who were deployed to very key emergency department. Their departure from that place has left a, you know, a, a gap really to fill. So for us, uh, that is a concern. Michael Larui is the National Director of Nursing at the Solomon Islands Ministry of Health. I can confirm that three of our senior nurses have left and that they have left under this arrangement between uh, the two countries. They have left to work at the aged care facility. While supporting Australia's labour scheme, he says it needs to be better managed in future to avoid staff shortages. In Vanuatu, the president of the Midwifery Society, Harriet Obed, says many nurses are showing interest in going overseas. That is a concern, definitely, because already we are short of human resource due to the working conditions and this push nurses to look better to other options like aged care outside the country. Pacific governments don't have the exact figures on the number of nurses leaving their shores. But Australia tracks the number of aged care workers it brings in, which is a work destination for Pacific nurses. An Australian government statement said... As of July 31, 2022, there were 307 workers in Australia employed in the aged care sector through the Palm Scheme. Of these workers, 172 are from Fiji, 65 from Kiribati, 34 from Samoa and 29 from the Solomon Islands, with the remainder coming from other participating countries. This is an increase from 145 workers as of December 2021. 
Not all aged care workers are nurses, but many trained nurses are opting for this type of work. Labor mobility experts say it's generally a good idea to open the scheme to more care workers, but with some caveats. Professor Stephen House from the Australian National University says there are some risks. On the Pacific side, the key issue to watch out for is brain drain. Though we don't want to be contributing to worker shortages in general, and we definitely don't want to be contributing to uh, shortages of nurses. Nurses are highly trained and are sought after in many Pacific countries. New Zealand, the Middle East and the US are attractive sources of work. Professor House. They can now apply to come to Australia under the Pacific Labour Scheme to work in an aged care home, not as a nurse, but as a a sort of lower paid uh, personal carer. You know, we don't know what the numbers are there. It's not a great outcome because they are, you know, they're basically overqualified for the job. And it it is a more general problem with the Pacific Labour Scheme that's basically offering financially attractive opportunities by Pacific standards, but in relatively unskilled positions. Professor House says more nurses should be trained in Pacific countries to meet demand. But across the Pacific, hospitals and health centres are looking at the options on hand as the number of nurses continues to drop. Dubravka Volader reporting there. Solomon Islands dodged a bullet this week after two earthquakes struck in the space of 30 minutes, some 56 kilometres from the capital Honiara. The first of the two was recorded at magnitude 7 and the second at magnitude 6. Marion Farr caught up with Honiara resident Adila Dolayano. Well, I was driving home and then I stopped by a little, you know, local market along the way. And I got out of my car, got some foot from the local stands, and then it started off like slowly. So I thought it was, I, I don't think it was going to be something big. And then I started realizing that it was uh, shaking a bit more than expected. So I was a bit scared, to be honest, because my car was swaying from side to side. And I was trying to get into the car. It was just the moment I was opening the door and then it came. I saw a big uh, semi-trailer just got back right in the middle of the road and driver get out of his truck. There were melons and uh, mangoes and vegetables on it thrown off uh, the stalls and the poor women were like <laughs> shouting. The first thing on my mind was to check the earthquake app on my phone. Then I realized it was around 70s on the Richter scale. I wasn't expecting that. Instinct starts to kick in and it's like, okay, what am I going to do? And the first thing to do is to check with nature, animals and stuff. And then it seemed to be okay. So instead of home to see if... The house was okay, and when I heard bike, there were like broken glasses and stuff. So I'm cleaning up at the moment, trying to think of what's going to happen next, because uh, there was an aftershock, and then there was another earthquake about 30 minutes from the first one. So now I'm a bit cautious, on high alert. We've heard that there's a tsunami warning. Do you live anywhere near the coast? I'm just a few yards away from the beach, and it's really flat out here. Is that worrying? Is that frightening to you? Oh, it can be frightening. You know what tsunamis can do, the force of the tsunamis, and most of the houses here are not built for that purpose. Right now, it's like I'm, I'm just on alert. If there's an indicator, then I'm going to jump in my car and drive off. 
I don't really want to be in panic mode, but we never know when these things happen sometimes. So. Did the earthquake feel very powerful? I would describe it as like when you're on a ferry and you're crossing rough waters. Yeah, something like that. Honiara resident Adila Dolayano speaking there to Marion Farr. And what's the price for pointing out a spelling mistake? Well, if it's in a court document and you're in Fiji, it could mean jail time. Prominent Fijian lawyer Richard Naidu has been found guilty of contempt and for scandalizing the High Court with a Facebook post. Mr. Naidu's crime was to point out the word injunction had been misspelt as injection in a court judgment. Amnesty's Pacific researcher Kate Schutze says even judges make mistakes and they should not be above the law. Our main concern here is the right to freedom of expression includes the right to be critical and judges aren't above that. They don't warrant some special protection in law just because they are judges. But the absurdity of this case is that it is over a spelling mistake, which is, in in the scheme of things, it's somehow, you know, in some ways immaterial. The courts have used this old common law charge um, from the UK, which is, completely abolished now and not used there. It's not used in a lot of other Commonwealth jurisdictions, but it's this sense that, you know, the court is somehow undermined their integrity. You know, people won't follow court decisions just because someone makes a joke out of it, which is completely ridiculous. And in many jurisdictions, they've adapted and changed, um, especially because of social media. And it's really unfortunate that in this case, we could see a prominent lawyer potentially go to jail over highlighting a spelling mistake, which was made by the courts in the first place. It does sound bizarre, but it does follow the book of the law, I guess. As you mentioned, it was common law in UK. That's been overturned. I believe even in Australia, we have contempt of court charges, um, though I haven't heard of a similar thing, a mistake of, of uh, over a spelling mistake uh, landing someone in court. But but is there a broader concern here? I mean, do you feel like the, the laws should be thrown out, these laws should be thrown out or at least changed? Yeah, absolutely. We think that the law um, needs to be reformed in Fiji because as it is now, the Fiji government has an arsenal of tools to restrict freedom of expression. And we've seen them use these various laws several times to prosecute lawyers, NGOs, journalists, trade union leaders, politicians, and they're consistently being used as a bit of a pattern to stop people criticising government or speaking out or the aim is to intimidate them into silence. So, um, you know, in this case, we might not see a prison term. We might just see a very serious, hefty fine. But the net effect is the same, is you deter people who see and hear about that case for speaking out and saying anything. Absolutely, we do have contempt of court in Australia, but I would be very surprised if you can find a case reference in the last 20 years that talks about someone who's not, before the courts on an individual case um, because usually there has to be that strong connection to undermining justice. So it would usually be in Australia someone's contravened to court orders, which is a different type of contempt, or a very direct connection to the administration of justice on an individual case. So, yes, you could, in theory, um, be charged with something similar, but we don't see it happen in this case. And just to draw a comparison, imagine if we couldn't criticise the US Supreme Court for overturning Wade versus Roe on abortion laws. It would be completely ridiculous. And the same ridiculousness applies to this case here. It should never have been prosecuted in the first place. It's entirely um, the attorney 
General's decision to prosecute this case and he can discontinue or withdraw those proceedings at any time. And that's what we're calling him to do here in regards to Richard Naidu. Is there an argument to be made here that the courts, they are they do have the rule of law, they do make these judgments. It is very important for citizens to have confidence in their legal systems. Is it also important that these legal systems aren't questioned through social media, aren't sort of um, judged at in, in in some ways, whether or not this this way is exactly accurate? But should, is it important to have some sort of these laws still present? I think there's a few things that we need to unpack in that. One is, you know, Fiji's judiciary was completely sacked in 2009 and Banamarama and this Attorney General were part of dismissing and throwing out the constitution and getting rid of those judges. A lot of the judges in Fiji now are on fixed term contracts, which means they don't get the same security of tenure that they get in Australia. And those are absolutely issues that go to the heart of the independence of the judiciary that we should be able to talk about. Amnesty International specific researcher Kate Schutze speaking there to the ABC's Priyanka Srinivasan. The future of Vanuatu's passport for sale program is up in the air now that the European Union has banned visa-free travel for new Vanuatu citizens. The move was prompted by concerns over transparency and the sale of citizenships to individuals known to Interpol. As Mackenzie Smith reports, passport sales are a critical earner for Vanuatu. Just days into his new job, Vanuatu's Prime Minister Ishmael Kausakal said he wouldn't rest until the visa waiver agreement with the EU was restored. According to the Vanuatu Daily Post, the Prime Minister's plan includes a restructure that could see the passport sales agents consolidated under one master agent. Until now, dozens of individual agents have been authorised to process applicants on behalf of the government. Vanuatu Business Resilience Council Chair Glenn Craig says however the government goes about it, it's vital the EU access is brought back on. The revenue from the, from the programme pays teachers, nurses, you know, doctors, police officers, and it will create a massive revenue shortfall. We will not be able to pay for those services. And I don't, don't think the EU quite understands what that means. Without the visa waiver programme, Craig estimates the scheme, which allows people to buy passports for 130,000 US dollars, could see sales drop by 80 to 90 percent. Vanuatu's government is reportedly still considering its options. Prime Minister Kausakau didn't respond to the ABC's requests for comment. Meanwhile, work is underway on a new database to improve transparency, including a new chair for the Citizenship Commission. Craig says these are all signs the government has made fixing the program a priority. It would be fair to say that enforcement of the rules around the marketing of the program was not as good as what it could be. There were too many agents and not enough standard operating procedures and limitations on marketing. Um, and there wasn't enough control around this. But he doesn't think a single agent is the answer. Instead, he'd like to see application standards improved and new appointments of independent members on the Settlement Commission. In any case, Vanuatu has its work cut out for it. The EU's suspension of the visa waiver programme in March was made permanent earlier this month, just days after Vanuatu formed a new government. A statement on November 8th says Vanuatu failed to engage in any meaningful way since the temporary suspension. But Craig says it was an abrupt move by the EU that gave the government little time to respond. Not speaking for the government, but an outsider looking in, the question would have to be raised 
was the EU ever really serious about negotiations? Because they haven't given the Vanuatu government the courtesy at all, knowing that it was only late in May that this temporary suspension was announced. He says the dispute underscores poor communication between the EU and Vanuatu government. Jenny Legal is the chairwoman of the Vanuatu Coalition for Gender Equality. She says whatever the government's plans, it needs to consult the public first. The way they do things, it's not really clear to the people, so that's why everybody is complaining. But I think at the end of the day, if we have a clear plan and then everybody knows why we are doing it and why we should not be doing it. She says while the citizenship program has been a vital source of income for Vanuatu, the government should be looking to bring it in line with Australia and New Zealand. Glenn Craig says if the EU doesn't come to the table, Vanuatu may have to look to other aid donors like China to meet the shortfall. And that is a real concern for a lot of us in the community as to where the government may be forced to look to. And I don't think that from a regional perspective, that's been considered closely. The EU's full suspension will come into effect on February the 4th. Mackenzie Smith reporting there. New COVID-19 variants are sweeping across the world and epidemiologists say the Pacific should be on alert. While case numbers are low in the Pacific, they're rising fast into Valu, one of the last countries in the world to experience an outbreak. Professor Fiona Russell is a leading epidemiologist and a vaccine researcher with the Murdoch's Children Research Institute. Tuvalu, for example, has got COVID for the first time. They have got very high vaccination coverage, thankfully. And so if they're elderly and high-risk people are well covered, then that's sort of the best way to meet the virus, you know, um, with this sort of inevitable sort of situation with the open borders and um, cruise ships and international travel, etc. However, you you know, many countries um, around the world have seen that with these Omicron sub-variants that are coming now, that the disease is less severe. However, that's because um, these countries have had lots of waves of different variants of Omicron and prior variants of of the virus. People have been vaccinated at a high level as well. So that means that the population has been, at a population level, has been protected by what's called hybrid immunity, which is a combination of protection from vaccination and the immunity that you get from a previous infection. However, many of the countries in the Pacific have had little exposure, thankfully, to this virus. And so they're heavily reliant or solely reliant, for example, such as Tuvalu, on vaccine-derived immunity. And so how the virus plays out in some of these countries, and particularly on outer islands where there, there may not be access to good health care or, you know, any health care, really, this is sort of very concerning. So I would really strongly encourage, um, you know, for anyone living in the Pacific who's not up to date with their vaccinations to to go and get um, vaccinated and get make sure they're up to date. Professor Fiona Russell from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, and she was talking to Dubravka Volader. When Lottie Jo decided to take up seasonal work in Australia, she thought that would mean the end of the road for her career as a beach volleyball player for Vanuatu. But when her employers heard about her dilemma, they decided to build her a court and keep her dreams alive. Jordan Fennell with this story. Representing Vanuatu, number five, Lottie Joe. Still 
only 25 years old, Lottie Jo has been travelling the world representing Vanuatu in international competitions for years. Great block! Vanuatu! Lottie Jo! The love of the game runs in her family and she's inspired to pick up a volleyball because of her dad. He used to play beach volleyball. I think that, oh, maybe one day I will play like this too. And her talent was nurtured at school. Because back in Vanuatu, every Friday we do a school program, after school program, and then we came and started training. And when she was just 13 years old, she started competing overseas. They select one team to go and play in international provinces. I'm very proud because I've never been, it's my first time going, uh, traveling to New Caledonia and play. Lottie now has featured in 27 international tournaments and won two gold medals. But this year, she's had to make a hard decision to leave beach volleyball behind and take up seasonal work in Australia. I don't have enough money to finish my house, so that's why I've been changed my mind to come here and work and finish my house and then come back. Rodney Prestia is the CEO of iComply, an approved employer under the Seasonal Worker Program, who met Lottie during a recruiting trip to Vanuatu. She wanted to go into the Seasonal Worker Program to complete the house, but she also knew that if she did that, then she'd have to probably sacrifice her professional volleyball career. And I said to her, I said, well, you don't really need to do that. Why, why can't you do both? And then she asked me, is where we're going going to be close to a beach? And I said, well, we're going to Stanthorpe. The nearest beach is about three hours. But if you're hell-bent on coming, I've been thinking about building a beach volleyball court. So why can't you do both? Rodney carted in $4,000 worth of sand from the Gold Coast to build the court. And he says the investment has been worth every cent. Yeah, the whole crew are out there you know, on Sundays playing beach volleyball. They're out there after work. Um, It just creates such a positive vibe. For Lottie, the option to keep playing volleyball has been invaluable. I thank Rodney for giving me this opportunity to pressure my calls throughout coming to Australia and work to money and fulfil my dream. Not only has she been able to train, Lottie has also been able to travel around Australia competing in tournaments with Team Vanuatu. Vanuatu scoring their first point of the second set. You know, last week she was picking broccoli in Stanthorpe. This week she's representing Vanuatu today against Japan. Next week she's going to be back picking broccoli in Stanthorpe. The new beach volleyball court sits in front of the I Comply homestead in Stanthorpe, the small town in South Queensland where 55 new Vanuatu seasonal workers are living right now. During the day, they harvest fruits and vegetables. And Rodney says providing spaces for them to play sport after work is a priority for his company. Culturally, for seasonal workers, they're used to being outside. As soon as they get home from work, they're outside, they're with family, they're with friends. So we tried to to replica what they're used to. So you've got to be able to provide that service for them. And it's not just volleyball. With the FIFA World Cup in full swing, he says football fever has taken over. We're running a I Comply Cup in three weeks, which is our Vanuatu seasonal workers against our Solomon Island seasonal workers. And, um, you know, the boys have been out training every single day after work. So, uh, you know, that's going to be exciting. That's going to be a big match. Since it began, the seasonal worker program has been plagued with allegations of worker mistreatment and poor living in working conditions. And Dr. Rochelle Lee Bailey, a labour mobility expert from the Australian National University, says access to sport hasn't always been an option for island workers. 
There was actually for a very long time, not everywhere in Australia, but in lots of places in Australia that I dealt with, where the pastoral care people have said straight out to me, no, we don't encourage them to play sports because they could get injured and then they can't work. But recently, Dr Bailey's seen a shift in that perspective. Since COVID and I guess all the isolation that we saw amongst seasonal work groups, we've really seen an increased awareness of including seasonal workers into um, community programs such as sports. She believes the option to play sport should be available to all seasonal workers. It provides uh, these seasonal workers with a sense of community and a sense of place when they come to New Zealand and Australia. We've got to remember that outlets like sports or socialisation is a way of coping. So that that's really good coping mechanisms, you know, for well-being, for problems of isolation, for boredom. Now with only a few more months left working in Australia, Lottie says she'll be able to head home with money for her house and her volleyball dreams still intact. And that's it from Pacific Review. I'm Evan Wasuka. Thank you for listening. And do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific.